0: Section Two of South Sea Tales by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The House of Mapu'i, Part Two. A light air began to blow out of the northeast, and the fan of it on his cheek seemed to cheer Raoul up. He could see the Aore trimming her sheets and heading offshore, and he regretted that he was not on her she would get away at any rate but as for the atoll a sea breached across almost sweeping him off his feet and he selected a tree then he remembered the barometer and ran back to the house he encountered captain lynch on the same errand and together they went in 2820 said the old mariner it's going to be fair hell around here what was that the air seemed filled with the rush of something the house quivered and vibrated and they heard the thrumming of a mighty note of sound the windows rattled two panes crashed a draught of wind tore in striking them and making them stagger the door opposite banged shut shattering the latch the white doorknob crumbled in fragments to the floor the room's walls bulged like a gas balloon in the process of sudden inflation then came a new sound like the rattle of musketry as the spray from a sea struck the wall of the house captain lynch looked at his watch it was four o'clock he put on a coat of pilot cloth unhooked the barometer and stowed it away in a capacious pocket again a sea struck the house with a heavy thud and the light building tilted twisted quarter around on its foundation and sank down its floor at an angle of ten degrees raoul went out first the wind caught him and whirled him away he noted that it had hauled around to the east with a great effort he threw himself on the sand crouching and holding his own captain lynch driven like a wisp of straw sprawled over him two of the Aores sailors leaving a coconut tree to which they had been clinging came to their aid leaning against the wind at impossible angles and fighting and clawing every inch of the way the old man's joints were stiff and he could not climb so the sailors by means of short ends of rope tied together hoisted him up the trunk a few feet at a time Till they could make him fast at the top of the tree, fifty feet from the ground. Raoul passed his length of rope around the base of an adjacent tree and stood looking on. The wind was frightful. He had never dreamed it could blow so hard. A sea breached across the atoll, wetting him to the knees ere it subsided into the lagoon. The sun had disappeared, and a lead colored twilight settled down. A few drops of rain, driving horizontally, struck him. The impact was like that of leaden pellets. A splash of salt spray struck his face. It was like the slap of a man's hand. His cheeks stung, and involuntary tears of pain were in his smarting eyes. Several hundred natives had taken to the trees, and he could have laughed at the bunches of human fruit clustering in the tops then being tahitian born he doubled his body at the waist clasped the trunk of his tree with his hands pressed the soles of his feet against the near surface of the trunk and began to walk up the tree at the top he found two women two children and a man one little girl clasped a house cat in her arms from his eyrie he waved his hand to captain lynch and that doughty patriarch waved back raoul was appalled at the sky it had approached much nearer in fact it seemed just over his head and it had turned from lead to black many people were still on the ground grouped about the bases of the trees and holding on several such clusters were praying and in one the mormon missionary was exhorting a weird sound rhythmical faint as the faintest chirp of a far cricket enduring but for a moment but in the moment suggesting to him vaguely the thought of heaven and celestial music came to his ear he glanced about him and saw at the base of another tree a large cluster of people holding on by ropes and by one another he could see their faces working And their lips moving in unison. No sound came to him, but he knew that they were singing hymns. Still, the wind continued to blow harder. By no conscious process could he measure it, for it had long since passed beyond all his experience of wind. But he knew somehow, nevertheless, that it was blowing harder. Not far away, a tree was uprooted flinging its load of human beings to the ground a sea washed across the strip of sand and they were gone things were happening quickly he saw a brown shoulder and a black head silhouetted against the churning white of the lagoon the next instant that too had vanished other trees were going falling and crisscrossing like matches he was amazed at the power of the wind his own tree was swaying perilously one woman was wailing and clutching the little girl who in turn still hung on to the cat the man holding the other child touched raoul's arm and pointed he looked and saw the mormon church careering drunkenly a hundred feet away it had been torn from its foundations and wind and sea were heaving and shoving it toward the lagoon a frightful wall of water caught it tilted it and flung it against a half a dozen coconut trees the bunches of human fruit fell like ripe coconuts. the subsiding wave showed them on the ground some lying motionless others squirming and writhing they reminded him strangely of ants he was not shocked he had risen above horror quite as a matter of course he noted the succeeding wave sweep the sand clean of the human wreckage a third wave more colossal than any he had yet seen hurled the church into the lagoon where it floated off into the obscurity to leeward half submerged reminding him for all the world of noah's ark he looked for captain lynch's house and was surprised to find it gone things certainly were happening quickly he noticed that many of the people in the trees that still held had descended to the ground the wind had yet again increased his own tree showed that it no longer swayed or bent over and back instead it remained practically stationary curved in a rigid angle from the wind and merely vibrating but the vibration was sickening it was like that of a tuning fork or the tongue of a jew's harp it was the rapidity of the vibration that made it so bad even though its roots held it could not stand the strain for long something would have to break ah there was one that had gone he had not seen it go but there it stood the remnant broken off halfway up the trunk one did not know what happened unless he saw it the mere crashing of trees and wails of human despair occupied no place in that mighty volume of sound he chanced to be looking in captain lynch's direction when it happened he saw the trunk of the tree halfway up splinter and part without noise the head of the tree with three sailors of the aoray and the old captain sailed off over the lagoon it did not fall to the ground but drove through the air like a piece of chaff for a hundred yards he followed its flight when it struck the water he strained his eyes and was sure that he saw captain lynch wave farewell raoul did not wait for anything more he touched the native and made signs to descend to the ground the man was willing but his women were paralyzed from terror and he elected to remain with them Raoul passed his rope around the tree and slid down a rush of salt water went over his head he held his breath and clung desperately to the rope the water subsided and in the shelter of the trunk he breathed once more he fastened the rope more securely, and then was put under by another sea. One of the women slid down and joined him, the native remaining by the other woman, the two children, and the cat. The supercargo had noticed how the groups clinging at the bases of the other trees continually diminished. Now he saw the process work out alongside him. It required all his strength to hold on and the woman who had joined him was growing weaker each time he emerged from a sea he was surprised to find himself still there and next surprised to find the woman still there at last he emerged to find himself alone he looked up the top of the tree had gone as well at half its original height a splintered end vibrated he was safe the roots still held while the tree had been shorn of its windage he began to climb up he was so weak that he went slowly and sea after sea caught him before he was above them then he tied himself to the trunk and stiffened his soul to face the night and he knew not what he felt very lonely in the darkness at times it seemed to him that it was the end of the world and that he was the last one left alive still the wind increased hour after hour it increased by what he calculated was eleven o'clock the wind had become unbelievable it was a horrible monstrous thing a screaming fury a wall that smote and passed on but that continued to smite and pass on a wall without end It seemed to him that he had become light and ethereal, that it was he that was in motion, that he was being driven with inconceivable velocity through unending solidness. The wind was no longer air in motion. It had become substantial as water or quicksilver. He had a feeling that he could reach into it and tear it out in chunks, as one might do with the meat in the carcass of a steer. THAT HE COULD SEIZE HOLD OF THE WIND AND HANG ON TO IT AS A MAN MIGHT HANG ON TO THE FACE OF A CLIFF. THE WIND STRANGLED HIM. HE COULD NOT FACE IT AND BREATHE, FOR IT RUSHED IN THROUGH HIS MOUTH AND NOSTRILS, DISTENDING HIS LUNGS LIKE BLADDERS. IN SUCH MOMENTS IT SEEMED TO HIM THAT HIS BODY WAS BEING PACKED AND swollen WITH SOLID EARTH. ONLY BY PRESSING HIS LIPS TO THE TRUNK OF THE TREE Could he breathe? Also, the ceaseless impact of the wind exhausted him. Body and brain became wearied. He no longer observed, no longer thought, and was but semi conscious. One idea constituted his consciousness. So this was a hurricane. That one idea persisted irregularly. It was like a feeble flame that flickered occasionally from a state of stupor he would return to it so this was a hurricane then he would go off into another stupor the height of the hurricane endured from eleven at night till three in the morning and it was at eleven that the tree in which clung mapui and his women snapped off mapui rose to the surface of the lagoon still clutching his daughter nigakura only a south sea islander could have lived in such a driving smother the pandanus tree to which he attached himself turned over and over in the froth and churn and it was only by holding on at times and waiting and at other times shifting his grips rapidly that he was able to get his head and nigakuras to the surface at intervals sufficiently near together to keep the breath in them but the air was mostly water what with flying spray and sheeted rain that poured along at right angles to the perpendicular it was ten miles across the lagoon to the farther ring of sand here tossing tree trunks timbers wrecks of cutters and wreckage of houses killed nine out of ten of the miserable beings who survived the passage of the lagoon half drowned exhausted they were hurled into this mad mortar of the elements and battered into formless flesh but mapui was fortunate his chance was the one in ten it fell to him by the freakage of fate he emerged upon the sand bleeding from a score of wounds nigakura's left arm was broken the fingers of her right hand were crushed and cheek and forehead were laid open to the bone he clutched a tree that yet stood and clung on holding the girl and sobbing for air while the waters of the lagoon washed by knee-high and at times waist-high at three in the morning the backbone of the hurricane broke by five no more than a stiff breeze was blowing and by six it was dead calm and the sun was shining the sea had gone down on the yet restless edge of the lagoon mapui saw the broken bodies of those that had failed in the landing undoubtedly tefara and nari were among them he went along the beach examining them and came upon his wife lying half in and half out of the water he sat down and wept making harsh animal noises after the manner of primitive grief Then she stirred uneasily and groaned. He looked more closely. Not only was she alive, but she was uninjured. She was merely sleeping. Hers also had been the one chance in ten. Of the twelve hundred alive the night before, but three hundred remained. The Mormon missionary and a gendarme made the census. The lagoon was cluttered with corpses not a house nor a hut was standing in the whole atoll not two stones remained one upon another one in fifty of the coconut palms still stood and they were wrecks while on not one of them remained a single nut there was no fresh water the shallow wells that caught the surface seepage of the rain were filled with salt out of the lagoon a few soaked bags of flour were recovered the survivors cut the hearts out of the fallen coconut trees and ate them here and there they crawled into tiny hutches made by hollowing out the sand and covering over with fragments of metal roofing the missionary made a crude still but he could not distill water for three hundred persons by the end of the second day raoul taking a bath in the lagoon discovered that his thirst was somewhat relieved he cried out the news and thereupon three hundred men women and children could have been seen standing up to their necks in the lagoon and trying to drink water in through their skins their dead floated about them or were stepped upon where they still lay upon the bottom on the third day the people buried their dead and sat down to wait for the rescue steamers in the meantime naori torn from her family by the hurricane had been swept away on an adventure of her own clinging to a rough plank that wounded and bruised her and that filled her body with splinters she was thrown clear over the atoll and carried away to sea here under the amazing buffets of mountains of water she lost her plank she was an old woman nearly sixty but she was pymoten and she had never been out of sight of the sea in her life swimming in the darkness strangling suffocating fighting for air she was struck a heavy blow on the shoulder by a coconut on the instant her plan was formed and she seized the nut in the next hour, she captured seven more. Tied together, they formed a life buoy that preserved her life, while at the same time it threatened to pound her to a jelly. She was a fat woman, and she bruised easily, but she had had experience of hurricanes, and while she prayed to her shark god for protection from sharks, she waited for the wind to break. But at three o'clock, she was in such a stupor that she did not know nor did she know at six o'clock when the dead calm settled down she was shocked into consciousness when she was thrown upon the sand she dug in with raw and bleeding hands and feet and clawed against the backwash until she was beyond the reach of the waves she knew where she was this land could be no other in the tiny islet of te kokoda it had no lagoon no one lived upon it hikuru was fifteen miles away she could not see hikuru but she knew that it lay to the south the days went by and she lived on the coconuts that had kept her afloat they supplied her with drinking water and with food but she did not drink all she wanted nor eat all she wanted rescue was problematical she saw the smoke of the rescue steamers on the horizon but what steamer could be expected to come to lonely uninhabited takakoda from the first she was tormented by corpses the sea persisted in flinging them upon her bit of sand and she persisted until her strength failed in thrusting them back into the sea where the sharks tore at them and devoured them When her strength failed, the bodies festooned her beach with ghastly horror, and she withdrew from them as far as she could, which was not far. By the tenth day her last coconut was gone, and she was shriveling from thirst. She dragged herself along the sand, looking for coconuts. It was strange that so many bodies floated up, and no nuts. Surely there were more coconuts afloat than dead men. She gave up at last and lay exhausted. The end had come. Nothing remained but to wait for death. Coming out of a stupor, she became slowly aware that she was gazing at a patch of sandy red hair on the head of a corpse. The sea flung the body toward her, then drew it back. It turned over, and she saw that it had no face yet there was something familiar about that patch of sandy red hair an hour passed she did not exert herself to make the identification she was waiting to die and it mattered little to her what man that thing of horror once might have been but at the end of the hour she sat up slowly and stared at the corpse an unusually large wave had thrown it beyond the reach of the lesser waves yes she was right that patch of red hair could belong to but one man in the Pymodus. it was levy the german jew the man who had bought the pearl and carried it away on the hera well one thing was evident the hera had been lost the pearl buyer's god of fishermen and thieves had gone back on him she crawled down to the dead man His shirt had been torn away, and she could see the leather money belt about his waist. She held her breath and tugged at the buckles. They gave easier than she had expected, and she crawled hurriedly away across the sand, dragging the belt after her. Pocket after pocket she unbuckled in the belt, and found empty. Where could he have put it? In the last pocket of all, she found it the first and only pearl he had bought on the voyage she crawled a few feet farther to escape the pestilence of the belt and examined the pearl it was the one mapui had found and had been robbed of by toriki she weighed it in her hand and rolled it back and forth caressingly but in it she saw no intrinsic beauty what she did see was the house mapui and Tafara and she had builded so carefully in their minds each time she looked at the pearl she saw the house in all its details including the octagon drop clock on the wall that was something to live for she tore a strip from her ahu and tied the pearl securely about her neck then she went on along the beach panting and groaning but resolutely seeking for coconuts. Quickly she found one, and, as she glanced around, a second. She broke one, drinking its water, which was mildewy, and eating the last particle of the meat. A little later she found a shattered dugout. Its outrigger was gone, but she was hopeful, and before the day was out, she found the outrigger. Every find was an augury, the pearl was a talisman late in the afternoon she saw a wooden box floating low in the water when she dragged it out on the beach its contents rattled and inside she found ten tins of salmon she opened one by hammering it on the canoe when a leak was started she drained the tin after that she spent several hours in extracting the salmon hammering and squeezing it out a morsel at a time. Eight days longer she waited for rescue. In the meantime, she fastened the outrigger back on the canoe, using for lashings all the coconut fiber she could find, and also what remained of her ahu. The canoe was badly cracked, and she could not make it watertight, but a calabash made from a coconut she stored on board for a baler she was hard put for a paddle with a piece of tin she sawed off all her hair close to the scalp out of the hair she braided a cord and by means of the cord she lashed a three-foot piece of broom handle to a board from the salmon case she gnawed wedges with her teeth and with them wedged the lashing on the eighteenth day at midnight she launched the canoe through the surf and started back for hikuru she was an old woman hardship had stripped her fat from her till scarcely more than bones and skin and a few stringy muscles remained the canoe was large and should have been paddled by three strong men but she did it alone with a makeshift paddle also the canoe leaked badly and one-third of her time was devoted to bailing by clear daylight she looked vainly for hikuru astern Tekokota had sunk beneath the sea rim the sun blazed down on her nakedness compelling her body to surrender its moisture two tins of salmon were left and in the course of the day she battered holes in them and drained the liquid she had no time to waste in extracting the meat a current was setting to the westward she made westing whether she made southing or not in the early afternoon standing upright in the canoe she sighted hikuru its wealth of coconut palms was gone only here and there at wide intervals could she see the ragged remnants of trees the sight cheered her she was nearer than she had thought the current was setting her to the westward she bore up against it and paddled on the wedges in the paddle lashing worked loose and she lost much time at frequent intervals in driving them tight then there was the bailing one hour and three she had to cease paddling in order to bail and all the time she drifted to the westward by sunset hikuru bore southeast from her three miles away there was a full moon and by eight o'clock the land was due east and two miles away she struggled on for another hour but the land was as far away as ever she was in the main grip of the current the canoe was too large the paddle was too inadequate and too much of her time and strength was wasted in bailing besides she was very weak and growing weaker despite her efforts the canoe was drifting off to the westward she breathed a prayer to her shark god slipped over the side and began to swim she was actually refreshed by the water and quickly left the canoe astern at the end of an hour the land was perceptibly nearer then came her fright right before her eyes not twenty feet away a large fin cut the water she swam steadily toward it and slowly it glided away curving off toward the right and circling around her she kept her eyes on the fin and swam on when the fin disappeared she lay face downward in the water and watched when the fin reappeared she resumed her swimming the monster was lazy she could see that without doubt he had been well fed since the hurricane had he been very hungry she knew he would not have hesitated from making a dash for her he was fifteen feet long and one bite she knew could cut her in half but she did not have any time to waste on him whether she swam or not the current drew away from the land just the same a half-hour went by and the shark began to grow bolder seeing no harm in her he drew closer in narrowing circles cocking his eyes at her impudently as he slid past sooner or later she knew well enough he would get up sufficient courage to dash at her she resolved to play first it was a desperate act she meditated She was an old woman, alone in the sea, and weak from starvation and hardship. And yet she, in the face of this sea tiger, must anticipate his dash by herself dashing at him. She swam on, waiting her chance. At last he passed languidly by, barely eight feet away. She rushed at him suddenly, feigning that she was attacking him he gave a wild flirt of his tail as he fled away and his sandpaper hide striking her took off her skin from elbow to shoulder he swam rapidly in a widening circle and at last disappeared in the hole in the sand covered over by fragments of metal roofing Mapui and tafara lay disputing if you had done as i said charged tafara for the thousandth time and hidden the pearl and told no one you would have it now but huru, huru was with me when i opened the shell have i not told you so times and times and times without end and now we shall have no house raoul told me to-day that if you had not sold the pearl to toriki i did not sell it toriki robbed me that if you had not sold the pearl he would give you five thousand french dollars which is ten thousand chili he has been talking to his mother mapui explained she has an eye for a pearl and now the pearl is lost dafara complained it paid my debt with turiki that is twelve hundred i have made anyway Turliki is dead she cried they have heard no word of his schooner. She was lost along with the Aore and the Hira. Will Toriki pay you the three hundred credit he promised? No, because Toriki is dead. And had you found no pearl, would you today owe Toriki the twelve hundred? No, because Toriki is dead, and you cannot pay dead men. But Levi did not pay Toriki, Mapui said he gave him a piece of paper that was good for the money in papaete and now levi is dead and cannot pay and toriki is dead and the paper lost with him and the pearl is lost with levi you are right tafara i have lost the pearl and got nothing for it now let us sleep he held up his hand suddenly and listened from without came a noise as of one who breathed heavily And with pain. A hand fumbled against the mat that served for a door. Who is there? Mapui cried. Nari, came the answer. Can you tell me where is my son, Mapui? Tafara screamed and gripped her husband's arm. A ghost, she chattered. A ghost! Mapui's face was a ghastly yellow. He clung weakly to his wife good woman he said in faltering tones striving to disguise his voice i know your son well he is living on the east side of the lagoon from without came the sound of a sigh m'puhi began to feel elated he had fooled the ghost but where do you come from old woman he asked from the sea was the dejected answer "'I knew it! I knew it!' screamed Tafara, rocking to and fro. "'Since when has Tafara bedded in a strange house?' came Nari's voice through the matting. Mapui looked fear and reproach at his wife. It was her voice that had betrayed them. "'And since when has Mapui, my son, denied his old mother?' the voice went on. "'No, no, I have not.' mapui has not denied you he cried i am not mapui he is on the east end of the lagoon i tell you nigakora sat up in bed and began to cry the matting started to shake what are you doing mapui demanded i am coming in said the voice of nari one end of the matting lifted Tafara tried to dive under the blankets but Mapui held on to her. He had to hold on to something. Together, struggling with each other, with shivering bodies and chattering teeth, they gazed with protruding eyes at the lifting mat. They saw Nari, dripping with seawater, without her ahu, creep in. They rolled over backward from her and fought for Nigakora's blanket, with which to cover their heads. "'You might give your old mother a drink of water,' the ghost said plaintively. "'Give her a drink of water,' Tafara commanded in a shaking voice. "'Give her a drink of water,' Mapui passed on the command to Nigakora. And together they kicked out Nigakora from under the blanket. A minute later, peeping, Mapui saw the ghost drinking.' When it reached out a shaking hand and laid it on his, he felt the weight of it, and was convinced that it was no ghost. Then he emerged, dragging Tafara after him, and in a few minutes all were listening to Nari's tale. And when she told of Levy and dropped the pearl into Tafara's hand, even she was reconciled to the reality of her mother-in-law. In the morning Said Tafara, You will sell the pearl to Raoul for five thousand French. The house? objected Nari. He will build the house, Tafara answered. He weighs it will cost four thousand French. Also, will he give one thousand French in credit, which is two thousand chili. And it will be six fathoms long? Nari queried. ay said Mapui. Six fathoms. And in the middle will be the octagon drop clock. Aye, and the round table as well. Then give me something to eat, for I am hungry, said Nari complacently. And after that we will sleep, for I am weary. And tomorrow we will have more talk about the house before we sell the pearl. It will be better if we take the thousand French in cash money is ever better than credit in buying goods from the traders end of the house of Mapui